0: Namaste Jai Hind. Welcome to another edition of ANI Podcast with Smita Prakash. Today my guest is High Commissioner of Britain to India, Mr. Alexander Ellis. He has been the British Ambassador to Portugal and Brazil. He served under Prime Ministers Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and now Rishi Sunak. Joining me in the podcast is my colleague and National Bureau Chief at ANI, Naveen Kapoor. Thank you very much for being here, uh, High Commissioner Ellis. We are very, very happy that you could come. You've just returned from Gujarat uh, and we want to know more about what happened at Eden Gardens. So let's begin with that.
1: Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Please call me Alex Smithers. that's my, my name. Um, well, anyone who comes to cr- India has to have some kind of love of cricket and I love cricket and I've played it all my life. And when I lived here 35 years ago, I used to play it here a little bit as well. And I was invited to play in Eden Gardens just after Christmas um, for uh, a sort of uh, UK in. West Bengal team against Bengal and the UK team um, and it was a fantastic experience. Um, it's Eden Gardens for any cricket fan I've scene of two of England's greatest humiliations number one Ben Stokes being hit for four consecutive sixes so I could stand at the crease and wonder how I could reach the same stand um, and secondly Mike Gatting losing the um, 1987 World Cup final for the real trivia cricket fans uh, but it was a great experience I love cricket India is the centre of cricket so that was great just come back from Gujarat. Uh, Gujarat is an important state for us because uh, about a third of the British uh, Indian community in the UK is Gujarati. And uh, there was a big celebration for the uh, 100 years of uh, the birth of Swami uh, Pramukh, who was the man who really inspired the building of the big temple in Nizden. Uh There were British politicians there. there were the
0: Bab Swami Narayan temple. Bab-Swami that's Swami right.
1: And there were lots of Brits uh, there as well. It's a huge event. And I was honored to read out a message from His Majesty the King. Um, uh, to, uh, to to the attendees. And there were also messages from both uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the leader of the opposition, Sakiya Stamba. So it's a big thing for the UK. And Gujarat's a big state for the UK as well. That's why we have a, a big office there.
0: Did you eat any of the local cuisine, uh, the Thali, the Gujarati Thali? I'm
1: always eating the local cuisine. Okay. Uh, one of the joys of this country is its diversity of its food. Mm. Uh, so uh, I'm certainly... I, I certainly ate a few duck. I don't know whether that would be considered particularly uh, Gujarati, but I. Ate you know quite that, lot
0: of the the thali, which is yeah. that. Uh, I'm sure you know what the thali is. I ate so a, a million thali as well. different things on the on the plate.
1: There always seem to be a million different things <laughs> on the plate. So one of the uh, I remember uh, going to the other end of India. Uh, we're going to Kerala House in September. And having an onam meal, okay. uh, which had, I think, 25 different things on the plate. Correct. um uh, Well, there was no plate, of course. It was a banana the leaf. banana leaf, uh, yes. And, uh,
0: eco-friendly.
1: Eco-friendly and very tasty as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the joys of India is its diversity. And one of the joys of its diversity is the diversity of its food. If you come from the UK... Your idea about Indian food bears very little relation to what Indian food actually is. When I lived here before, I realized that. And I'm going back to the UK and, like a good student at university, going uh, to eat a lot of different kinds of uh, what we call curry in the UK. And I now realize the
0: Chicken tikka masala.
1: Uh, certainly, chicken tikka masala. I'm no problem. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, I, you know, delicious. I see the guy who invented chicken tikka masala died the other day, <laughs> uh, a guy in Glasgow, uh, my, my mother's hometown. Uh, and I, realize, I now realize that that food had almost nothing to do with the food which you eat here. One of the many reasons for coming to India. Uh, and I'm delighted that e visas are back, allowing lots more Brits to come to India is so you can eat this huge variety of food.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. I'm going to come to the visa issue soon in the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, before that, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to speak about uh, this the tenure that you've had. I mean, There have been three changes in prime ministers while you were here. There was Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak. But I would seem that there's an uninterrupted continuity with regards to bilateral relations. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I
1: completely agree with you, Smith. I think that coming out of the European Union, um, going through COVID and also the consequences of the rise of China mean that the UK is looking at India uh, in uh, quite a... new way and a much bigger way than before Uh, and so the integrated review which was a strategy document which we produced about two years ago which I was the lead civil servant for really set the course for the UK uh, in relation to India by saying India was going to be one of our top priorities in the world that's partly because India is going to be one of the three defining countries of the 21st century Mm -hmm. so I think it's true for many many um uh Uh, countries that India is a top priority. But the UK has the extraordinary assets of the living bridge of its uh, diaspora in the UK. Uh, uh, And so we saw a huge opportunity in India uh, across a wide range of different areas. I'm sure we'll come on to some of them. Climate would be one and sustainability, another would be defence and security, another would be trade and investment and then living bridge and health and research and education is another one. All great areas of opportunity. And the UK and India. It's, quite, it's a complicated relationship because of the history, because of the Raj, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, but here is the opportunity to look ahead and to invest heavily in that relationship. And I agree with you about the continuity. And that continuity, I think, is illustrated by the fact that all three of those prime ministers are very interested in India, know India, visit India, mm-hmm. want to do more with India. What I also see on the side of the Indian government is an interest in working with the UK. I'm sure we'll come on to some of the reasons why mm-hmm. and how that shows itself. But the stars are aligned. Um, uh, and they're not always aligned so when they are you need to get on and do stuff and that's what I'm here yeah. to do
2: uh, Hi Commissioner uh, now the in, uh, Mr. Prime Minister of UK uh, Mr. Sunak he has Indian roots do you think that helps to uh, add some intensity to the
1: relationship? Let's look at symptom and cause the fact that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom uh, lights lamps outside Number 11 Downing Street when he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, that he hosts a Diwali reception within, I think, days of becoming uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Tells you something about the United Kingdom and how much it's changed over the last generation. I talked to some of my most sort of, senior contacts and friends here who said to me, I could never believe that somebody of uh, South uh, Asian origin could become Prime mm. Minister of the United Kingdom. Well, they have. And that tells you about the UK. And it's not just true in politics. I think you see it across public life. One of the former England cricket captains was born in Chennai. Uh, The former president of the Royal Society uh, was uh, also a Tamil as well. So the UK has changed. Now, of course, uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak knows India well, uh, partly through his family history, partly through his wife as well. Uh, And so he's very interested in India. We've already had several engagements uh, with Prime Minister Modi. They met, they spoke on the phone, I think twice. India's interest, India's interest, UK's interest is still the UK's interest. So we'll have to find a way to how we achieve those things. But it helps enormously when you have somebody who really knows and understands the country. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting reflection, I would say, overall of politics in the UK. I I say this because I think our politicians have a sort of different take on the world maybe than a generation ago. I'll give you two other examples. So we had Kemi Badenoch here recently uh, as the trade secretary, the trade minister, Piyush Goyal's opposite number. And she'd come to kind of give some impetus to the free trade ne- uh, negotiations. And she was brought up in Nigeria. Uh, I think she lived until she was 16. Uh, she's British, uh, as Rishi Sunak is as I am, but she has just a sort of different take on the world. James Cleverly, our foreign secretary, who was here, I think, yeah, within days of being reappointed. Uh, his first trip abroad after being reappointed as foreign secretary was to India, to Mumbai and then to Delhi. And he uh, spent quite a lot of his childhood holidays in Sierra Leone. So that's just a different take on the world. I think that has to have some influence on the way you see the world.
0: They would have to uh, keep track of or they would be aware of the legacy issues of the relationship, but at the same time have a new take, I guess, on the new frontiers of this relationship. I think
1: that's right. I mean, they're all, you know, British as British as I am, (laughs) but… what they do do is see the world in a different way. Mm. And they also see, they understand the opportunity which exists in India, um, some of the complexity of India as well, um, and its extraordinary diversity. And they don't need explaining about what India Mm. is and what opportunities it provides. And that's a great thing if you're doing my job.
0: The FTA talks that concluded the sixth round of talks, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson had said that by Diwali, it should get done. But uh, Prime Minister Sunak has said uh, you know, has said set, set aside that date. Where is it getting stuck, and uh, when do we see that fructification happening?
1: The visit of Prime Minister, of uh, uh, Trade Minister Kemi Badenoch has given some impetus to the talks. Again, we just concluded the sixth round. We plan to do a seventh round in, in a couple of weeks' time uh, in the UK. So we are getting towards the end of this negotiation. I would say uh, we've. Uh, it's a long ascent up to any mountain and you go through the valley for a long time, then you get up to your base camp and then you have to start to do the short, sharp ascent. And that's what I think we're about to try and do. Both countries want to do a deal, I think. And that's a big change. India did a batch of uh, trade deals about a decade ago, I think, and then was quite critical of them, felt that it hadn't really worked out for it. And so it's now restarted with a sort of new policy, and you've seen that with Australia and with the UAE. The UK, interestingly, in parallel, has been doing new trade deals of, after leaving the European Union. It's not coincidence we've done them with Australia, uh, gaining close partners with India. Uh, both countries, I think, are talking to Canada as well. Uh, and I think we're going to start to do some negotiations, I think, with the Gulf countries as well. So actually, countries are sort of negotiating with similar countries. The issues will come down, I think, to how much is each side prepared to lower their tariffs on some goods, um, uh, cars, for example, I was talking to the British motor industry this morning, for India, it'll be textiles, I should think, and some clothing. Uh, How much openness can there be on services on the Indian side, pretty close markets, can we open it a little bit more, because we think that gives opportunity both to India and to the UK. India will say, well, we need to have some uh, uh, more op- opportunities for temporary mobility of workers between India and the UK. There's quite a lot of that already, but I'm sure that they will ask for more. And there'll be some other issues around investment protection, for example. But you can see what those issues are. And you, then it's, I think, questioned down to not just the technical details, but the political will. So a lot of work has been done. We've actually closed over half the chapters, and I think we can close some more pretty soon. Student
0: visas? Is that uh, India wanting more student visas?
1: So that's a completely separate thing. So a trade deal will deal with an issue this around be, the temporary uh, mobility of workers. In other words, you know, can you temporarily send a worker from, let's say, TCS, because uh, they're big investors in the UK, from India to the UK? How, under what conditions can you? they do that? For how long and so forth? Can you create uh, migratory routes, for example, temporary migration for... Uh, chefs is a classic one that very often uh, specialized. Yeah, yoga yes. teachers might be another which India would be interested in. That's an entirely separate thing from student visas. Okay,
0: that doesn't come under the FEA yeah, skilled
1: skilled stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's about skilled workers. Now, India already gets uh, I think f- over forty percent of all of the skilled worker visas which the UK issues go to Indian nationals. So uh, you have a lot of international providing very skilled work in the UK. By the way, I'd like to get more um, skilled Brits coming to India. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for more people from the UK to understand more about the reality of India today. But student visas uh, is a separate issue outside of a free trade agreement.
0: And uh, does the patent issue also come in as a Intellectual
1: property is part of uh, the discussion. How do you make sure that you have proper uh, protection of intellectual property? Uh, that is particularly sensitive in areas like pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. as you'll know, India being a great pharmaceutical producer, uh, and we're in quite heavy, intense discussions with the Indian government exactly about that. But you have to step back and think, why do we want to do this deal? Um, there are clear economic benefits. Uh, our own uh, work shows that. I think uh, we published at the beginning of last year as we launched the negotiations, um, some figures about how much our GDP would benefit and how much growth we would benefit. And I think that's also true for India as well. So there are economic benefits. There are benefits about supporting the flow of talent and ideas between the two countries. I think there are also strategic benefits. Both countries want a free and open Indo-Pacific. Both want to increase trust between the two countries. India sees a big opportunity, I think, in being an alternative supplier to China in some areas um, and high-end manufacturing, for example. And for that, you need access to the UK market. Now, we have quite a lot of trust already between our countries. An example, for example, the Covishield vaccine, that's a UK-India joint production Mm. um, uh, designed in a great university, uh, in Oxford University, and then manufactured and put around the world by the Serum Institute as well as AstraZeneca. But I think we could do more of that. I'd like to see where we could do that next. And I think a free trade agreement underpins that trust, increases that trust, and also just brings the two countries closer together.
0: In his first major foreign policy speech, uh, Prime Minister Sunak had an interesting perspective on Indo-Pacific and China. You just mentioned yeah. Indo-Pacific. Uh, he said, and I'm going to quote, uh, By 2050, the Indo-Pacific will deliver over half of global growth compared with just a quarter from Europe and North America combined. Uh, that's why we are joining the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal and the CPTPP, uh, delivering a new FDA with India and pursuing one with Indonesia, unquote. And he was uh, very explicit in the words he chose about China. And he said, I quote, um, we recognize China poses a systemic challenge to our values and interests, uh, a challenge that grows more acute as it moves towards even greater authoritarianism, unquote. If you could break down on India, Pacific and then China, because even the Indian leadership hasn't used such strong words about China.
1: Sure. China presents a new challenge for the world. It is very powerful, uh, second biggest economy. But it may become the first biggest economy. It may not. It is autocratic. It is a technological superpower. No doubt about that. Um, and it is expansionist. Um, and if you're sitting in Delhi, you know that better than if you're sitting sure. in the UK. Boy, in the UK, uh, uh, it, China has big impact. Uh, But it also has even bigger impact in India where you share such a long border. Many of the the global problems can't be solved without China. Climate change would be one. Pandemic preparedness would be another. So how do you work with an increasingly wealthy, powerful, technologically highly sophisticated autocracy? There's no model for how you do this. This isn't the Cold War. It's something different. And so countries, I think, try to deal with China, both in some cases with cooperation, say on climate change, for example, and India does that as well with China. Uh, Sometimes confronting where we have differences of values, and that's why the UK's policy on China has evolved is because of Chinese behavior in relation to Hong Kong, as well as in relation to Xin and uh, occasionally um, challenging as well. So this is a shared endeavor. And I think the UK and India share that endeavor. Now, it's a great time to be Indian, in my view, because you have this fantastic opportunity ahead of you over the next generation. I feel that urgency as well in India about, you know, this is a great moment for India. But you're doing it in a context which is not benign, mm. uh, where you have greater challenges to open free trade in the Indo-Pacific. And, you know, the Indo-Pacific will be the center of the world over the next 50 years or so. And how do you do that? Well, you think you do that with more friends. If we've learnt one thing from uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which we happily talk about. Mm. You need friends. Uh, Ukraine has friends. Russia doesn't really. Um, And those friends can help you. And India is a mighty country and it's going to get bigger. But I think it sees the opportunity of having better relationships and friends with different countries in its neighborhood. That's why you have the Quad. But also with the UK and some other countries as well.
0: I want to ask you about, you spoke about human rights um, and uh, China, uh, how do you see the situation in Tibet uh, and, uh, you know, about China upholding human rights in, its, in in that region? Because suddenly it's it's no longer an issue. I mean, suddenly or over the years, it's just gone into the background as far as the world opinion is concerned.
1: Well, human rights abuses uh, exist in many parts of the world and they need to be challenged. And there are different ways which you can try and do that. Um, and I think for a while, we thought in the West, uh, that as China grew, it would become more liberal, very crudely. Um, I think that was a misjudgment. Uh, it was uh, 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 a misjudgment which many countries made. And it's turned out not to be the case, at least under Xi Jinping. Uh, and I should emphasize also there's an element of Xi Jinping's China as well, which is a different kind of China where you – instead of having a leadership which lasts for 10 years and then you change over, you now have somebody who looks like they're going to be in power for a lot longer. And that's a new world as well um, uh, for us in relation to China. So uh, – and we do call out those abuses we did in Hong Kong. Obviously, that has a particular sensitivity for the UK because it used to be uh, a British sovereign territory and we have uh, allowed a lot of people from Hong Kong to come into the UK partly in response to that. So I think we do call out those abuses. Um, the effect of doing so, you can argue, um, although we were able to do things in the case of Hong Kong uh, to facilitate people coming to the UK, um, which I think will be of enormous benefit to the UK as well. But this is going to continue to be a problem um, and something which I think we, the UK, we, India, we're going to have to find a ways of identifying, pointing to it and trying to change it. But it's a hard thing to do.
2: So uh, as you said, that China will be a big challenge and uh, you said you use the word expansionist we have seen the big fights between India and China off late in Galvan and now recently in Arunachal how do you look at the approach uh, taken by India in this matter and also do you see when you say that you should have friends are you also suggesting some kind of military alliance with the western powers with India to counter
1: China I was careful not to use the word ally because I think, you know, it's about friends um, and about making sure that uh, you have friends who can support. And it's interesting to see, for example, how that friendship evolves. We've just had, I think, for the first time, or for the first time in a very long time, a a British naval ship in the Andaman Islands. Uh, Now That's a very sensitive territory for India, uh, not surprisingly, considering its geographical location. But I think there's great interest uh, of more cooperation between the Indian Navy and the UK Navy. We saw that when we bought the uh, aircraft carrier here in October, 2021, with a, um, a sort of multinational um, uh, uh, supporting ships as well. And more work on maritime domain awareness, for example, more understanding of what's going on in the wider Indian Ocean is something which the UK and India are working together closely on. I think the land situation is a bit different and India very experienced in dealing with the land situation, I think, Tends to tackle that itself, but we are all, in our different ways, having to work out what do you do with the Xi Jinping China. At some mm. points, you are working together. We do work together in some areas. Mm. I, I don't want to dismiss that, but it's a different world. And I think the world I started in in diplomacy in mm. 1990—that's when I start, joined the foreign service just after the collapse of the Berlin Wall—was an incredibly optimistic time. Uh, and I think we are in more of an era of real politic and of great power competition than we were then.
0: And yet something's never changed because since the 90s, we've been wanting, India's been wanting to be a permanent member of the UN Security Council. China will continue to oppose is there any recalibration? Is there any change? Is there more muscle that the rest of the world can add for India to be part of that?
1: We certainly support uh, UN's uh, India's uh, becoming a member of the UN Security Council as part actually of a wider Security Council reform so the institution reflects the reality of today changing those institutions is hard. Uh, we need to make them work. Some of them come from straight after the Second World War, like the UN and the UN Security Council. Some come later, like the World Trade Organization, created really at the kind of apogee, the zenith of globalisation in the mid-90s. And, um, and where we want to work more with India, actually, to make that a more effective institution. So, um, Where we can, let's try to make things better. I'll give you one example, which is in the international financial institutions, another product of Mm. the end of the Second World War. Now, we need to keep adapting those to the reality of today. and We want to work on more with India on that. So, for example, they are lending more in some of the countries where we're going to need uh, greater support, for example, small island states, which are particularly vulnerable, uh, where we find other ways that they can increase their impact uh, around the world. But it's hard work. Um, Mm. Changing multilateral institutions is hard work. What we're seeing is the creation of sometimes new institutions which start small but may grow. I'll give you one example: the um, uh, they are on disaster resilient infrastructure CDRI, uh, created by India with big UK support, and we were the joint co-chairs to launch the institution. And that's trying to deal with a problem of today and tomorrow, which is how do you create more disaster-resilient infrastructure around the world, but I think it'll particularly in the Pacific region, small island states. India started the International Solar Alliance as well in the um, Paris uh, Climate Change Conference. So you can create some new stuff. You can try and see, run, remodel some old stuff. And you do a bit of… Kind of multilateralism as well. A quad would be an mm. example of that. Uh, messy lateralism, you sometimes call it. <laughs> okay. But working, but I think India will increasingly be part of all of those things, and uh, including as a partner, say, with the UK and India, but with some other countries where we're trying to solve particular problems.
0: The war in Ukraine it's brought about unexpected changes as far as countries, um, you know, they've had to recalibrate their foreign policy perspectives. Uh, They've got to uh, see the impact it has had on each of their nations before they can decide on a group uh, reaction. So how has it impacted Britain? How do you see that?
1: President Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, totally unprovoked, is having a global impact. I think it's impacting every country, to be honest, because mm-hmm. of its consequences for fuel prices for um commodities for uh, fertilizer prices and so forth, but it's also having a huge human impact. It's having human impact, most of all in Ukraine, where people are dying, um, mm. defending their country. Its impact on the UK is, first of all, is many things, but one of them is an emotional one. It is very shocking to have a kind of really, uh, you know, a direct invasion of one country of another in Europe is something which Europe has this terrible history of the 20th century, of the first half of the 20th century in particular, And it resurrects, it brings from the dead those ghosts. Um, It's emotionally very shocking. Secondly, it has human impact. Um, uh, We have quite a lot of Ukrainians coming to the UK. Uh, We have policy about how you absorb them into the UK. Uh, One of the reasons, by the way, we were slow in some of our visa turnarounds last year was because we were focusing. And so on Ukrainians who are fleeing the UK, uh, fleeing the UK, uh, fleeing Ukraine coming to the UK. It has an economic impact, it's increased inflation very considerably. Um, uh, it increases energy costs, it increases uh, other kinds of costs as well. Um, it, it means we are spending quite a lot of money, if, uh, the development money, which we'd like to be spending in some of the poorest parts of the world. We're having to spend around Ukraine to support, for example, the humanitarian crisis which is caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And of course, we are supplying uh, 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 weapons to Ukraine to defend its territory. So. It's having a very considerable impact. I'm afraid it also brings home the point I was making earlier that we are uh, the world, the benign world in the 1990s is long gone. We are in the mm. world of geopolitical competition. But I should say this main impact is on the people of Ukraine because they are dying, because somebody, their neighbour, their autocratic neighbour is trying to take over their country.
0: What is the British view about how India is, uh, is handling the situation? Is there uh, any acceptance, rejection annoyance with the way uh, the Indian Prime Minister said that war is not a solution. And he continues to have talks with uh, President Putin.
1: Sure. And I very much agree with what the Indian government said in the UN Security Council very early on, which is you need to respect the rule of law, the UN Charter and territorial integrity and sovereignty. Now, each country then has to work out the best way of how you go about doing that. The UK with other countries is doing that through supporting Ukraine to try and resist the Russian invasion. Uh, India's standpoint is a different one, uh, and there are reasons for that, which I understand and I explain. Um, at the same time, we are trying to work with India, for example, to reduce its dependency on Russian materiel um, uh, for its armed forces. Uh, and we are working to make sure that uh, uh, you can create the greatest possible uh, opportunity for a peace, but it's got to be a fair peace, one which uh, you know uh, allows Ukraine uh, not uh, to have its territory just taken away arbitrarily. Any kind of deeper partnership, which is the one we're trying to create between the UK and India, you're going to have differences of view. The great thing is you talk about those differences. And when Prime Minister Boris Johnson was here, he did with Prime Minister Modi, they had a very interesting frank conversation about it. When our Foreign Secretary James Cleverly was here at the end of October, he had a similar conversation. So that you do it privately, you do it with understanding, you understand which other comes from, and you see what you you can do together and how you can do it. And that's exactly what we're doing. Because a good deep partnership is not one where you just agree all the time. It's one sometimes you are going to disagree, but you do that in a way which understands each other's positions and sees what you can do together.
2: But, sir, uh, don't you think that India's uh, history with Russia, our historic relationship, uh, don't you think that, uh, like, the West is opposing India buying oil from them and India continuing buying supply, arm supplies from the Russia. So how do you look at the, from the perspective of our, you know, uh, history?
1: You're right. India does have a, a quite different relationship with Russia than for example, the United Kingdom or many of the countries of Europe or the United States. And we know that um, and we understand why that is. What the West is trying to do, what the UK is trying to do along with other countries is to, end Russia's disastrous and totally destructive invasion of Ukraine. How do you do that? You try to put some pressure on the Russian economy. Not so Russia collapses. That's in no one's interests. Um, uh, But that Russia steps back from this mad um, uh, invasion and desperately harmful invasion. That's why uh, – so what what the UK is doing is trying to create an oil cap, for example, so that Russia can continue to get oil revenues but can't make it – you know, outrageous profits out of the um out of the situation of the high oil price. Um, and we think that that's the way it's a calibrated way of trying to put pressure on the Russian government, but at the same time not destroy the Russian state, which we don't want to do. We have no interest in doing. It. So, India will buy oil. India needs to keep inflation down, so does the UK. We understand that. But we want to end this war in a way which uh, reduces the harm which Russia is doing, not to Ukraine especially, but also to the rest of the world.
2: I can understand there's a narrative in the Western press and especially the think tanks. They are saying that Indian money is fueling the war, it's sponsoring this war. In a way, Russia, they're supporting buying oil from Russia, it's strengthening their economy.
1: Do you agree with this? I don't represent the US. I represent the United Kingdom. Oh, no, I'm saying the Western and press. and, and, the, and, uh, and uh, I certainly don't represent the... the press of any country, which is uh, our, our press in the United Kingdom is joyfully free to say what it wants, and it does every day, including about uh, my own government. Mm. What I think we need to focus on is how do we get President Putin to stop what is a totally unnecessary, unprovoked, and disastrously damaging uh, war? Um, uh, and what is the best way of doing that? And that's something we talk to all the time to the Indian government, as we should. But we'll do that you know, in private and at all different levels. And that is the big question for 2023. But what is clear to me is that we cannot allow an autocratic giant to invade its democratic neighbor and take its land. That is an important
2: principle. Do you see India the peacemaker mm. in this?
1: I see India an ever-increasingly powerful country which will surely have a role in any global issue and it has to deal with it partly because it's the presence of the G20. I think, by the way, it's great that India is having the presence of the G20. So let's see. But first of all, we've got to get uh, President Putin to uh, stop uh, the destruction, the, the, the war and the destruction of Ukraine. Uh,
0: when we talk about, uh, you know, earlier in the podcast, we were talking uh, about legacy issues uh, with regard to... The Cold War and post Cold War world. You know, uh, uh, one of the problems, uh, problem areas in India UK relationship has been uh, many. Uh, British parliamentarians, they advocate the Pakistani cause. In the parliament also, there are some some uh, (laughs) do-gooders, members of parliament, who say that they, uh, unilaterally, they offer to mediate between Pakistan and uh, India and say this is the legacy that since we caused the partition, it is our duty to mediate between India and Pakistan on Kashmir. That obviously is a thorn in the flesh as far as India is concerned. Nobody likes it out here that Kashmir is discussed in British Parliament.
1: We get into uh, one of the things which makes my job interesting and challenging sometimes, which is the history of the UK and India. Um, And that's a complicated history uh, as a former colonial power. The British Parliament is a place where people are free to say what they want to say. They're elected representatives of people in the United Kingdom. Uh, And they do. Um, uh, uh, I always look. At, I would always say, look at the British government and what the British government does and doesn't do. And the British government has been very careful on this subject. Um, and you were talking about successive prime ministers, and we've had successive foreign secretaries and, uh, since in my time here. They've been extremely careful about this issue. It's not something which uh, you know we spent a lot of time discussing with the Indian government. And at the same time, British parliamentarians will say you know what they want to say, just as Indian parliamentarians do as well.
0: So, is it just politics?
1: I think that uh, it is part of the noisy democracy, which is the United Kingdom. uh, The
0: constituency of Mirpuris and the others in those areas.
1: I think that the the UK's population is getting increasingly diverse. Um, There's no doubt about that. If you look at the data, we just had our um, 10-year census uh, from England, Wales, a very useful document. That shows the increasing diversity of the UK population. Um, in terms of people born outside the UK, in terms of ethnicity as well, and in terms of religious diversity as well. And so it's not surprising that our parliament reflects that diversity.
0: It happens in India too. We have uh, kind of a diverse population, maybe not people of ethnic origin from outside our geographical borders, but within Mm. the country, we have that diversity. But when when it comes to foreign policy, there's... There's rarely any dissonance. Sometimes, yes, with regard to neighbours, but in the British Parliament, what we get to see is talking about uh, decisions which are taken in India. For example, what happened in Kashmir—the uh, abrogation of the article—so mm. uh, this is discussed. And uh, as a as somebody who was part of your uh, colonial past, we don't like it that you know it's w- that it's still being discussed as if we are still a vassal state.
1: Well. It's 75 years since independence, I think we've, right. we, we've all moved on in lots of ways. I completely understand why people don't like it. Uh, but I also like the freedom of speech um, and the sure. democracy which exists inside the United Kingdom. What I'll always say to anybody is look at what the British government does and what the British government says uh, and are uh, very careful on this issue and what we really focus on is all the things we should con- construct together.
0: But. I understand the, the, you know, about the freedoms, whether it is the media or whether it is uh, politicians, Uh, being a democratic nation, we do have those demonstrations which happen out here, where flags are burned by protesters and all. But it's taking increasingly violent turns, whether it is um, pro-Pakistan elements in London or pro-Khalistan elements, you know, vandalizing the High Commission or uh, or the gandhi statue these things are happening and it, it it's in and they get they fund uh, the separatist movements in india that's not that's not just freedom it's misusing the freedom isn't it
1: so where um, there is mis- misuse in the sense of criminal acts, or we will act as we always will um, uh, to ensure that uh, there's proper protection, for example, of diplomatic premises. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, by the way, I noticed that there is a Gandhi statue in London. That tells you something about the UK, uh, that uh, you know, somebody who led the movement uh, against uh, uh, British rule is now commemorated and respected um, and has a statue actually sitting, looking at our parliament. I think that tells you something about uh, the UK and, and its own debate about its past. So when there are criminal acts, we'll always deal with them. Um, and we do. And we talked in government a lot about that. I don't know whether it's increasing. I might challenge you on that. I'm not sure if there's evidence that there is. Um, uh, and on the very large whole, the United Kingdom is a peaceful country in which there's plenty of noisy debate, but people respect the law. When they don't, we need to act as we have in the case, for example, of um, some of the disturbances which took place in Leicester, where there have been Plenty of arrests as a result of that, and actually one or two convictions as well already. Mm-hmm. Uh, our legal system can move quite fast in those circumstances. But overwhelmingly, as the United Kingdom becomes, becomes more diverse, uh, it's of enormous benefit to my country.
2: Um, Sir, uh, there was also a task force formed by the government. Uh, do you think it has helped, you know, bringing down these incidents?
1: Uh, so we cooperate a lot with the, uh, with the Indian government uh, where we see uh, threat and risk to both countries. Um, and in fact, we exactly, you're right to mention as part of the roadmap agreed between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Prime Minister Modi in spring of 2021, we created a task force which we're now sort of getting operational uh, to look at where there are risks to both countries. Uh, because the executives, and governments have every interest in cooperating on this.
0: On national security matters? In yeah, course. including
1: on extremism, um, and, on extremism. Um, and dealing with extremism.
0: Okay, uh, you know, uh, increasingly one sees that uh, there, there there are many fugitives uh, from India who are in Britain. Whether it is Malia or Niram Modi, uh, will you be sending them back?
1: So I won't get into the particular cases, although I know that there are some very sensitive cases um, in, in, in 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 India. Um, the UK – let's separate different things. So the UK government can order an extradition and has done so in some of the most sensitive cases. Indeed, has done so several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, any decisions in that area are justiciable before a British court um, and so they are. Um, and so it's really now a question of what the legal system does and how quickly the legal system works. Um, and they are going through that process. Um, as I've heard uh, our former Prime Minister Boris Johnson say before, the wheels of justice turn slowly. But they do turn. What the UK government has no interest in is becoming a place in general for financial fugitives. That is not in our interest. We don't want that. And that's why we take the decisions we do. But ultimately, those decisions are challengeable in the court and the courts are going through their process.
0: So there's economic offenders and then there are former prime ministers of Pakistan who find refuge in London. What is it about London that attracts people like Benazir Bhutto, uh, Zardari, Nawaz Sharif, Altaf Hussain? I All think
1: the best thing to do is be ask the one hundred twenty-seven thousand people who got a student visa uh, from India last year. Why do you want to go to the UK?
2: Because
1: mm-hmm. it's a great place to be. Is that the only reason, or is there? Yeah. Um... it's a great place to be. The UK is a great place to be. You've been there yourself. Uh, sure, it's an excellent place to be. What might be true for a former leader might be true for an aspiring student as well.
0: Why is it that they find safety there? Is it because it's safety in numbers? They they don't find they don't decide to go to Switzerland or to to the US, but it's there.
1: Well, I'm not there to answer for the personal decisions of uh, former politicians from any part of the world, but the UK is a safe country. Um, it has an excellent rule of law, uh, which applies uh, uh, to everybody, um, and those are great things. One of the things about the Living Bridge, as Prime Minister Modi calls it, is it has a huge flow of great people, and then maybe one or two people who might, you know, you might not want in the the United Kingdom. I'm making a general point, not a specific point to anybody there. Um, And then the rule of law, when the rule of law needs to apply, needs to apply, and it does apply. And again, things go through our courts. But it's a great country, and it attracts people from all over the world. And I'm delighted that it does.
0: I want to go and move to G20. Sure. And uh, what is Britain's expectation of G20 and India hosting G20?
1: It's a big challenge. I'm really pleased that India has the presidency of the G20. You had, uh, I think, Harsh Ringler on, uh, hmm. yes, on the the other podcast. day. Yes. Because India is a powerful country, an increasingly powerful country. And as we were discussing earlier, it's a country which has the ability to talk to many different countries. And I think that's extremely useful at the moment because you're in a world in which... There are huge global problems. We talked about climate change and s- sustainability. We could talk about public health as well. And at the same time, it's a very divided world, the world of the era of geopolitical competition. So you're having to deal with big problems where you have a very fractured uh, uh, group of countries. But India, I think, has the c- convening power to bring those countries together to try and work its way through. Now, the Indian presidency is very ambitious. Amitabh the G20 member, is very ambitious, and that flows from Prime Minister Modi. Um, to try and tackle some of the world's big problems and, for example, on development and how you do development in the future. How does technology play a role in development? It's also an opportunity to tell the story of India and the story of new India and of modern India. So I'm glad that India's got uh, uh, the um, the presidency and we will support it absolutely to try and find answers to those, to those questions. But it's a tough ask. There's a high ambition. There's, it's a tough ask at the same time.
0: What is Prime Minister uh, Rishi Sunak's visit to India whenever that happens? What is that going to be
1: like? Well, I hope very much we might have a Prime Minister Modi visit to the UK as well. I think because he was a, he was an absolute hit when he came uh, last time. I, I, I remember uh, when it was with our uh, then Prime Minister David Cameron who talks mm-hmm. about uh, Brook Bond, mm-hmm. Green Bond, James Bond. <laughs> uh, so uh, he can he can fill a stadium, uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, amongst many other things. I think that there's enormous interest in Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in India. Yes. You'll tell me yeah, because...
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I was uh, asking.
1: You know, both because of his family heritage via East Africa um, and uh, because uh, through his wife, and therefore his knowledge of India. Remember, this is a man who, when he swears the oath to become a member of parliament, the book he swears it on is the Bhagavad Gita. Yes. It um, uh, tells you something about uh, uh, the UK parliament of today, to go back to what you were asking <laughs> me earlier. So uh, I hope he'll come. He's a busy man. Um, He's got some issues to deal with at home. Uh, uh, But I I would presume that around the G20 summit, he would come here. Mm. Um, But what I'd like is, you know, we had a, Terrific launch of a new partnership two years ago, you know, this sort of new relationship we're trying to create between the two countries, Prime minister Boris Johnson and Prime Minister Modi. We're then delivering that and we've got the free trade agreement coming towards you know its climax I hope in the, in the coming months. We have a lot more cooperation on defence and security. We have the living bridge issues I talked about where we a huge increase in the number of visas issued to Indian nationals. And I'd like to bring that all back together. And so I'm, I'm all, I like any high commission, I'm looking mm-hmm. for that opportunity when I can bring the leaders together to talk about those things. But, you know, it's quite a thing when the Prime Minister of the UK is lighting the deer lamps outside uh, yeah. in Downing Street.
0: So, you know, uh, how important is personal chemistry between prime ministers? Like you've, you've had a long uh, career in diplomacy from the 90s. You've seen so many prime ministers interacting with each other. You've been on the, you know, on the sidelines and watched all these summits. How important is that personal chemistry?
1: I think it is important because every prime minister has a very crowded agenda. Mm. Uh, there are a thousand and one things they have to do at the same time. And one of the things about governing is choice. You know, Where do you focus on? And the fact that you have a prime minister in the UK who knows India well and understands you know, the opportunity which India provides is uh, good news as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I also think that... I, yeah, Prime Minister Modi and Prime and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak can of we'll talk to each other in a particular way because of that understanding. Um, uh, so uh, we'll see. As I say, uh, for example, in the free trade agreement. Uh, uh, Indian negotiators are tough negotiators. I like to think the UK negotiators are tough negotiators as well. So there are still material interests, but knowledge and understanding and focus, I think, can be affected by uh, that um, uh, that bilateral the relationship, the human relationship.
0: As a career diplomat in the job, I mean, you you've got a legacy. You've got so many high commissioners before you. Sure. As a career diplomat, when you look back uh, and you see uh, your predecessors, what new thing do you bring to the table? What new vision?
1: One of the golden rules of any job is never speak about your predecessor or your successor, That's <laughs> whatever. But I think I'm doing my job for my successor's successor. Uh, things take a while in India. You know, it's a ten year job, uh, and so I, I am benefiting. From some of the work done by my predecessors, I'll give you an example. The agreement on the mutual recognition of qualifications, academic qualifications, really important between the UK and India, signed uh, last year after about a decade uh, of trying. Um, uh, The agreement reached between the Indian government and Cairn Energy, the company who had assets expropriated over 10 years ago. That's a decade's worth of work. So what I need to do is to sow those seeds for the next, uh, for the very successor's successor. And I think we want to do that in the environment and climate change. I think we want to do that through a free trade agreement if we can and some new trade deals. Um, These are things which are going to have long-term benefits.
0: So when you you get to know that, when a career diplomat in the UK gets to know that he's posted to... Or oh, he or she is posted to London. What is uh, to uh, New Delhi? What is the reaction? How does one?
1: Well, my reaction is to put my shirt over my head and run around the room with joy. It was fantastic. <laughs> I was so happy. As I say, I lived here a long time ago. I was a teacher in Indore in 1986, and I travelled around all of the north of India for most of a year. Hmm. Uh, so I was just incredibly happy. Hmm. It's materially one of the most important countries for the UK. I would say in top five in the world for the UK. I think that's even more true as a result of having left the European Union and China, um, which puts an even sharper focus on India, and also because of India's own rise, which will continue over the next generation. So there are kind of solid material Marxist reasons, if you like, for a strong UK-India relationship. Hmm. There's a uniqueness of the living bridge with all its good, and sometimes its tricky bits, and we talked about those in this podcast, but on the whole, it's a great thing. I mean, it's a great thing Hmm. Um, uh, to see – the diversity of talented success of uh, people of south asian origin in the uk and you speak the language because you've been here mai thodi hindi sirf
0: ab zyada bolte zyada
1: nahi bahut mushkil hai har 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 hafte mein ek kaksha um slow progress
0: no, 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 no. And n- not many people know he sings very well too. Sir,
2: please. Uh, yes, you must, you can, I have heard. A small song for us.
1: You must be joking. But the, I'm, each week I try to watch some of a Hindi movie uh, to try and improve my Hindi. Uh, any recommendations, by the way, from listeners to the podcast?
0: RRR, today, Golden Globe. So R-r-r-r. you have to, yes, no. RRR. Uh,
1: well, at the moment I'm listening to Dil Se. It's a wonderful. Ar Raman's a fantastic composer, actually, and I yeah. listened to him singing live, and I, I thought he was wonderful. So, um, I try to. I do my you know little study every day. I have a class every week. I try to listen to some um, uh, uh, Hindi movies. Um, all of that helps with the kind of pleasure of being in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just. You need seven lives to begin to understand this country, um, but I'm only on two years in. And, uh, but having the comparative of 1986 helps a bit because you see both some of the things which remain the same about India and some of the things which have changed enormously. 1986, there was a Maruti and that yes. was about it. I, you know, my life was spent drinking Limga, Thumbs Up and Gold Spot. I have not turned into a <laughs> diabetic as a result of that, I don't know. Um, uh, but it's a very different place in subways. But it's a very old Old civilization as well, and that doesn't change.
0: 1986 is when we didn't even have economic liberalization, as you said, just yeah. the Maruti. That's right. And we were just, and the throes of the Khalistani movement, yeah, Punjab separatism. You're
1: absolutely right. I remember yeah. at the time, I, uh, I traveled all over the country, uh, all over the north, um, and uh, I couldn't get into uh, La Punjab at that time. I and mean, people said, you just had to go straight through. I was taking some epic bus journeys. I took the bus bus from Delhi to Srinagar. At that point, Srinagar was completely open. Um, uh, beautiful. Kashmir is the most beautiful place. And I could go there. I spent about a month there.
0: It's still open.
1: Yeah. But it's harder <laughs> now. Um, uh, uh, really uh, well compared to 1986 i think at that yeah, point, the militancy had yeah, the security up this. focus was hmm. very uh very much about punjab and i had to go straight through it sure. i couldn't stop i couldn't see the golden temple now for fantastic i went to the golden temple uh, i went to Chandigarh. um so uh it is a very different place but a very similar place at the same time
0: really yeah okay that's what most people say about india that some things just don't change and uh, some things are so radically different.
1: Yeah, it's a more urban place. It's a more evidently entrepreneurial place. Um, you see, it remains a very young place. It's developed a lot since 1986. You can see that in, in mm. all sorts of ways. Of course, my vantage point is different. In 1986, I was sitting uh, usually on the roof of a very crowded bus or train. Uh, now, I travel with a, a bit more comfort. Uh, okay. uh, uh, but it remains... It's incredibly interesting. Hmm. The depth of culture is extraordinary. I like no other country. It's why I think why India has such a great cuisine because I think that reflects the depth of its culture. Yeah, you were in in
0: Portugal and Brazil before uh, India, right? Yes,
1: spent plenty of time in Brussels as well and a bit bit of time in Spain. Um, And Brazil and India, for example, are very different countries. Brazil is actually two and a half times the size of India landmass. As
0: noisy as India?
1: uh, When you're in carnival, in it's pretty noisy, but India provides uh, Brazil and India have some similarities in extraordinary quality and stimulation of its popular culture, dance, visual arts, sports. Uh, but Brazil doesn't have cricket.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. Uh, you know when we when uh, the other reporters uh, in our office got to know, and uh, T and I got to know that you're coming in here. There was a you've got to ask that running joke that everybody talks about that, uh, you know, when you go to a British museum, it's like a crime scene. All our artifacts are there. Please ask him, when is it going to come back to India? So I said, OK, we will do. I'm asking you now. When sure. is it coming back?
1: UK is a global country and it has the heritage of a global country, including its museums. And I'm delighted our museums are such fantastic places and some of the most visited places in the world. There is now much more of a debate in the UK about its imperial past. That's only a recent thing, I think. You know, I studied history. I was a history teacher. My father was a history teacher. My grandfather, both my grandfathers lived in India, uh, uh, both in the army. My grandfather was in the Punjabi army, in the 60th Punjabi regiment, um, stationed up in the northwest frontier, then I think in Pune, then became a history teacher. It's great to see that debate really kicking off in the UK about it's imperial past uh, and there's some great podcasts around it. I listen to uh, the rest is history and also to Empire which has Anita Anand as well as William Daremple herself, a product of The uh, yes. Living Bridge. Um, Satnam Sangira's book about uh, uh, Empire Land, again, he's a product mm-hmm. of, uh, of, uh, of The Living Bridge, um, are beginning to stimulate that discussion. Now, part of that is a very political discussion. I'm a civil servant. I'm not going to get into the politics of that. But I noticed, for example, Glasgow University has just returned some artifacts in the process of returning some artifacts to India, and that's much more of a live issue than it was. Now, that, as I say, is very political, um, and uh, but it's not. It is now being discussed in a completely different way from when I was a student, or even.
0: And these are incom- uncomfortable uh, conversations, right? Yeah, I mean, are. even at at the family table, these yeah. must be uncomfortable discussions.
1: Um, they are. All good family tables have uncomfortable discussions. <laughs> I like uncomfortable discussions, uh, particularly at the family table.
0: And if everybody's a historian in your family, then it's all the more, right?
1: Yes. Uh, and my grandfather loved India, actually. My maternal grandfather, so my nana.
0: Mm, nana. Uh,
1: um, uh, and in fact, I learnt Hindi as a small boy without knowing it. Uh, my grandfather was a good Scots, so and my mother's a good Scots. So they played golf. My mother taught me to play golf. And as a small boy, I used to carry... Her golf club's around the golf course in Scotland, and she would say, go and be my agewala, agewala."
0: agewala
1: agewala, And I had no <gasps> idea. She said it. I'm saying it in the wrong oh. accent. agewala." I had no idea what it meant, and now it's oh. agewala. So I would go ahead and look for her ball when she hit it.
0: Oh, wow. Although
1: she's a very good golfer, so it always landed on the fairway. Oh. Uh, so, in fact, it's, it's funny, and my grandfather would talk about a chotapeg. <laughs> um, and so the, and the, and you don't realise it how these words and this influence comes into your own life and it's only yeah. coming back here Punjab
0: regiment you said right yeah he
1: was in the 16th, 16th Punjab
0: Punjab so he would know the Chota Peg of course he yeah. would
1: yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> right. and uh, you know pictures of him I've got pictures for him with his javans and stuff like that and he had a life I remember watching him as a small very small kid I'd watch him when he had his breakfast porridge good Scott again chop mm. up a banana put it on it uh-huh. Habits from India
0: Really? Okay. Yeah. So that was unique, is yeah. it? I, I, you know, I, um, I remember once uh, our first correspondent, uh, in, uh, in London, uh, was a person called Mr. Trevor Barnard. And I knew that he had been in India and he was like, he, he studied in England, uh, in India. But one day I had my baby with me and I was, you know, I was just rocking him to sleep. And, uh, I just said, ninni baba ninni makhan roti chini, uh, and I kept saying that because that's the only ditty I knew. Uh, makhan, roti Be- and chini, Cini. right? So that was the only one. So he was sitting in front of me and says, why didn't you sing the complete uh, one? So I said, what? So he says, nini baba nini, makhan roti chini, makhan roti ho gaya, mera baba so gaya. I just looked at him and I said, how do you know? And Trevor who went to London after, uh, who went back to England after independence um, in 48 or 49, he went back and he said, it just come back to me. My nanny used to say this in Patna in Bihar when he was a baby. So you're talking about like, I don't know, 20s or 30s. And it just came back to him and he knew the entire one and I didn't. Yeah. So these are our legacies, you know, which new generations would probably not remember this at all. They but are. Your, I, you have experienced this with your grandfather.
1: And it crops up in so many ways. George Orwell being born in um, Bihar, I think it was. Or mm. um, I, the other day, uh, very sadly, a, a great singer of, of, of my youth, Terry Hall, the Specials, which was a great band when I was growing up, died. It reminded me that Jerry Dammers, who was really the guy who was the inspiration for a lot of the music I listened to when I was uh, growing up, was born in Uti. Um, his father was a vicar okay. there. So you just have these human relationships.
0: Mm.
1: I think one of the things I'd like to do is to get more Brits to come to India now. I think you have many, many people from India going to the UK as students, as skilled workers, as mm. visitors, as well as tourists. Uh, but I'd like to get more Brits to India because I think that Brits need to see the reality of India today. You know, when New I bring, India? Yeah. Is it? Well, when I bring oh. a minister to Hyderabad, for example, which we did a few months ago. He was just bowled over by what he saw. He had no idea about the scale of the opportunity and the the dynamism and the change. So India is represented abroad in lots of different ways. But one other thing I think I would like British people to understand is this is what the reality of India is today. Going back to having a prime minister who knows that new India, that's an enormous help. Hmm.
0: Uh, I have to ask this question, another question which I was told you must ask. He's not going to answer it, but ask it nonetheless. So I am going to ask you about it. What is it, the the halabaloo over Harry and Meghan and the soap opera that's happening? I don't know whether you want to answer this. Will you I'll, answer that? I'll it?
1: leave that to readers of like books a, and viewers of The Crown and the many other things that go it's on. It's like
0: a joint family, Indian joint family, Hindu joint family, or even a Muslim joint family of India. It sounds like that. It looks like that. Everything about it is... Uh, is I, just that?
1: I, I'm quite sure that uh, exactly for those reasons that Indians would be able to give a particular take and perspective. On. Do
0: people ask you about that when you move around in, in India?
1: They do a bit. Not so much, actually. Um, uh, but I appreciate it's something of global interest. Uh, in the UK's constitutional monarchy has been for many, many centuries. Um, and it is a subject of enormous interest, uh, I think, to the world. It's interesting that you raised the monarchy. I mean, the queen sadly died last year. Uh, and you now have King Charles uh, the Third as uh, his majesty, King Charles Third as our monarch. And there is somebody who's visited India many times, yes. many, many times. Enormous interest in Indian culture. Um, uh, enormous interest uh, in all, many aspects of Indian culture. And interestingly, when each year in the UK, uh, the monarch gives an address to the nation on Christmas Day. And I noticed this was the first address by uh, His Majesty the King that he referred, he is the, he is the, the head of the, of the Anglican Church, but he referred in his address to Gurudwaras and to temples amongst other places which were supporting British life. That tells you again something about the changes in my country.
2: Two questions I want to ask. Uh, one, uh, like you said, Mr. Sunak, there's a huge interest here. Can you give us a sense of what, how UK looks at the new India, as you said, and Modi's policy, you know? how UK is looking at it and as, an ambassador, as a high commissioner, how, what is your evaluation
1: of... I won't get into, the, you know, the internal Indian politics. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that to uh, to, 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 to India. What I, I will say is the enormous interest in India, in the UK, uh, for all the reasons we've talked about, because, I mean, going back to what you were quoting, uh, Prime Minister Rinishi, Sunakar saying, India-Pacific will be really the center of global growth. India will be one, I think, one of the three defining countries of the 21st century. But, uh, and with an enormous potential, I mean, the next twenty-five years I think can be great ones for India, and India is already on that path towards being a much bigger economy, um, uh, and it already has a big impact in the UK, partly through the diaspora, partly in that sort of cultural ways, whether dare I say, a chicken tikka masala, hopefully a, mm. a, some other some other dishes as well, uh, and partly in other ways. So, I think the UK sees a huge opportunity for a deeper UK-India partnership. What's interesting to me is I think India sees a potential from on the other way as well, about a close relationship with the UK. So, but I want that story to be told more. I want people to understand and see what's going on in India, the reality of India today. You live it every day here. I live it to an extent every day here. But I would like more people exposed to it. That's why it's great, by the way, that now India's reopened e visas for Brits because that's going to stimulate many more people to come here.
2: And I said that the economy is very badly hit by the war. Ukraine Russia war. Sure. We are also reading lot of stories about UK economy ge- getting a very very bad hit by.
1: Sure.
2: Inflations are going up. So how is UK tackling that and uh, do you see similarity between the Indian economic position and your position right now?
1: Well, the two economies obviously are obviously of very different sizes and structure. I mean uh, GDP in a head in India is about 20. That of the UK but the economy is 20 times the size. So India is now overtaking UK in terms of the sort of global total size of the economy and that's a great thing. I mean it's a thing massively in the UK's interests. It, the idea of war is having an effect on the UK and I think it's admirable that the UK, despite those effects, is determined to you know, defend Ukraine um, and its territory against the uh, President Putin's, uh, Putin's invasion. It means we have to face some tough choices. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak actually at the beginning of this year has really set out what he's trying to do and was to grow the economy, halve inflation, uh, tackle illegal migration which we talked about earlier as well. So it will be quite an important year for the UK. But I think it's also a reason why you want to have that closer UK-India relationship because I think having a free trade agreement for example means you can stimulate both economies having the cooperation on climate change means you're going to do it in a sustainable way because that is one of the great challenges of our time. It's how we, India's got this fantastic growth opportunity, but doing it sustainably is going to be one of the great challenges for India. And what happens in India will affect all of the world. That is the scale of India now. Uh, So working together on that. But at the same time, making sure we're more secure. That's the era of geopolitical competition. You want the growth, you want it sustainable, and you also want it secure. Uh, And that's why I think the defence and security cooperation will matter much more. So we have all of this history, and it's complicated sometimes, as we've discussed. But you want to be building for the future, all the things we need to do over the next 25 years. And I think that uh, that is exactly what I think Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak want to talk more about.
0: In conclusion, uh, High Commissioner, I just want to ask you because, you know... I never you got do... you to
1: call me Alex today, Smita.
0: No, <laughs> no one day I will. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, 80s and 90s, you've seen India then. Mm. Uh, as far as foreign policy is concerned, it uh, it used to bother India that... India was looked at with the prism of Indo Pak, always India Pakistan. And from then we've moved to 2000s, 2023 uh, to now. Now it's become India China. Everything that happens here is with that Chinese perspective. Mm. So uh, do you see this always this hyphenation when it comes with India?
1: I think it's India and the world. You're absolutely right. There's been a sort of dehyphenization of India and Pakistan. And that's been a bit of a, of a changing of the last letter from K to C, mm. Indo-Pacific, Indo-Pac. But actually, I think it's India and the world. I think India's impact in the world is so much greater now, uh, partly through just internationals all over the world, partly through what happens in India will affect the world on climate change, um, on health, for example. And that is the, that's the reality we're in now and that's a challenge for a country which is still going through a huge phase of economic development which i think it will in the next 25 years but it's also the great opportunity and that's why i think a country like the uk fifth sixth largest economy in the world uh still with a, a country with unusually large global interests must and will work with india but it's a great time it's a mm-hmm. great time to be doing this because there is a lot of opportunity amidst all of the many challenges and i think prime minister Modi is very good at seeing as he has over climate change how do you turn that into an opportunity and i think that's something for the uk as well
0: you know uh, uh high commissioner Ellis has a has a lovely indian dog i saw he is such a gorgeous beast
1: <laughs> she is she, she is sorry <laughs> she is a lovely Rampo hound uh yeah. beautiful dog um uh, and uh just a joy an absolute wonder that dog in
0: uh, prime minister modi's been saying that we should indians should you know adopt Indian dogs <laughs> Indian breeds and uh, here you have the High Commissioner has an Indian breed dog and she's she's gorgeous she's she is, really cute she is
1: absolutely gorgeous and she certainly won't be part of any uh, trade deal is all I could say <laughs> she's staying absolutely with us but if there's some way as part of that Jane trade deal we can get Jesprit Boomer to come to the UK aha
0: uh-huh. look at that something. now you drive a hard bargain don't you
1: what a talent though <laughs> Thank
0: you very much for being part of this podcast. Thank you for inviting We look forward to having you here again soon after the G20.
1: Thanks very much indeed.
0: Thank you. Thank you for watching or listening in to this podcast. Do like and subscribe on whichever channel you have heard this or seen it. Namaste. Jai Hind.